Good evening, good morrow, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hippie Queen Productions, an hour reading of Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. Sit back, enjoy, and let's get ready to hit some green lights. What's a green light? Well, green lights mean go, advance, carry on, continue. On the road, they're set up to give the flow of traffic the right of way, and when scheduled properly, more vehicles catch more green lights in succession. They say, proceed. In our lives, they are an affirmation of our way. Their approvals, support, praise, gifts, gas on our fire, attaboys and appetites, their cash money, birth, springtime, health, success, joy, sustainability, innocence, and fresh starts. We love green lights. They don't interfere with our direction. They're easy. They're a shoeless summer. They say and give us what we want. Green lights can also be disguised as yellow and red lights. A caution, a detour, a thoughtful pause, an interruption, a disagreement, indigestion, sickness and pain, a full stop, a jackknife, an intervention, failure, suffering, a slap in the face, death. We don't like yellow and red lights. They slow us down or stop our flow. They're hard. They're a shoeless winter. They say no, but sometimes they give us what we need. Catching green lights is about skill. Intent, context, consideration, endurance, anticipation, resilience, speed, and discipline. Well, you can catch more green lights simply by identifying where the red lights are in our life. And then changing course to hit fewer of them. We can also earn green lights, engineer and design for them. We can create more and schedule them in our future. A path of least resistance. Through force of will, hard work, the choices we make can be responsible for green lights. Catching green lights is also about timing. The world's timing and ours. When we're in the zone, on the frequency, and with the flow, we catch green lights by sheer luck, because we're in the right place at the right time. Catching more of them in our future can be about intuition, karma, and fortune. Sometimes catching green lights is about fate. Navigating the Autobahn of life is the best possible way about getting relative with the inevitable at the right time. The inevitability of a situation is not relative. When we accept the outcome of a given situation as inevitable, then how we choose to deal with it is relative. Whether we persist and continue in our present pursuit of the desired result, or we pivot and take a new track to get it, or concede altogether and tally one up for fate, we push on, call an audible, or wave the white flag and live to fight another day. The secret to our satisfaction lies in which of these we choose to do and when. This is the art of living. I believe that everything we do in life is part of a plan. Sometimes the plan goes as intended. Sometimes it doesn't. That's part of the plan. Realizing that this is a green light in itself. The problems that we face today eventually turn into blessings in the rearview mirror of life. In time, yesterday's red lights lead us up to today's green light. All destruction eventually leads to construction. All death eventually leads to birth, and all pain leads to pleasure. In this life or the next, what goes down will come up. It's a matter of how we see the challenge in front of us and how we engage with it. Persist, pivot, or concede. It's up to us, our choice every time. This is a book about how to catch more yeses in the world of no's. How to recognize when a no might actually be a yes. 
This is a book about catching green lights and realizing that the yellows and reds eventually turn green. Green lights. By design and on purpose. Good luck. Part 1. Outlaw Logic. A Wednesday night, 1974. Dad had just gotten home from work. Greasy, blue, buttoned down with Jim on the left chest pass, already thrown in the washer. He sat at the head of the table in a sleeveless undershirt. He was hungry. My brothers and I had already eaten, and Mom pulled his reheated plate from the oven and shoved it in front of him. More potatoes, honey, he said as he dug in. My dad was a big man. Six foot four, 265 pounds, his fighting weight, he'd say. Any lighter and I'd catch a cold. At 45 years old, those 265 pounds were hanging in places that, at this Wednesday evening, my mom didn't fancy. Sure you want more potatoes, fat man, she barked. I was crouching behind the couch in the living room, starting to get nervous. But Dad, head down, quietly continued to eat. Look at ya, that fat belly of yours. Sure, eat up, fat man, she yapped as she scraped an overwhelming amount of mashed potatoes onto his plate. That was it. Boom. Dad flipped the dining table into the ceiling room, got up, and began to stalk Mom. God damn it, Katie, I work my ass off all day, and I come home, and I just want to eat a hot meal in peace. It was on. My brothers knew the deal. I knew the deal. Mom knew the deal as well. She ran to the wall-mounted telephone on the other side of the kitchen to call 911. You can't leave well enough alone, can you, Katie? My dad grumbled through gritted teeth. His forefinger raised at her as she closed in across the kitchen floor. As he moved in, my mom grabbed the handheld at the end of the phone off the wall mount and raked it across his brow. Dad's nose was broken. Blood was everywhere. Mom ran to the cabinet and pulled out a fat 12-inch chef's knife, then squared off at him. Come on, fat man. I'll cut you from your nuts to your gulliver. They circled each other in the middle of the kitchen. Mom waving the 12-inch blade, Dad in his bloody broken nose snarling incisors. He grabbed a half-full 14-ounce bottle of Heinz ketchup off the counter, unscrewed the cap, and brandished it at her like a blade. Come on, fat man, she dared him again. I'll cut you wide open. Assuming the stance end of a mocking matador, Dad began to fling ketchup from an open bottle across at Mom's face and body. Touché, he said, as he pranced right to left. And the more he flipped ketchup on her and dodged her slashing knife, the more frustrated Mom got. Touché again, Dad teased as he splattered a new red stripe across her while eluding another strike. Around and around they went until finally, Mom's frustration turned to fatigue. Now covered in ketchup, she dropped the knife on the floor, stood trait, and began to wipe her tears and catch her breath. Dad dropped the bottle of Heinz, relaxed out of his matador pose, and wiped the blood dripping from his nose with his forearm. Still facing off, weapons down. They stared at each other for a moment. Mom thumbing the ketchup from her wet eyes. Dad just standing there, letting the blood drip down from his nose on his chest. Seconds later, they moved towards each other and met in an animal embrace. They dropped to their knees. Then, with the bloody, ketchup-covered linoleum kitchen floor, and they made love. A red light turned green. This is how my parents communicated. That's why my mom handed dad an invite to their own wedding and said, you've got 24 hours to decide. Let me know. That's why my mom and dad were married three times and divorced twice to each other. 
while my dad broke my mom's middle finger to get it out of his face four separate times. This is how my mom and dad loved each other. The McConaughey clan migrated from Ireland to Liverpool, England, to Little Rock, West Virginia, and New Orleans. While there's no royalty in our past, there is, however, a lot of cattle thieving, riverboat gambling, and an Al Capone bodyguard. Dad is from Patterson, Mississippi, but grew up and felt most at home in Morgan City, Louisiana. Mom's from Altoona, Pennsylvania, but always said she was from Trenton. Because who'd want to be from a place called Altoona? I have two brothers. The oldest is Michael, been going by Rooster for 40 years now because even if he goes to sleep at 4 a.m., he always wakes up at sunrise. When he turned 10, he wanted a little brother for a birthday present, so Mom and Dad adopted my brother Pat from a Methodist home in Dallas in 1963. Every year, Mom and Dad offered to take Pat to meet his birth parents, and he declined until he turned 19 and took them up on the offer. Mom and Dad arranged the meeting, and the three of them drove home to the place of Pat's birth in Dallas. Parked curbside, Mom and Dad waited in the car while Pat rang the doorbell and went inside. Two minutes later, Pat walked out of their house and jumped into the back seat. What happened? They asked him. I wanted to see if my dad was bald because my hair's thinning. Well, me? I was an accident. Mom and Dad had been trying to make a baby for years to no avail, and so Mom thought I was a tumor until the fifth month of pregnancy. Dad went to the bar instead of the hospital on the day I was born because he suspected I wasn't his anyways. I was. I got my first ass whooping for answering to Matt on the kindergarten playground. You weren't named after a doormat, Mom screamed. My second for saying I hate you to my little brother. Third for saying I can't. And my fourth for telling a lie about a stolen pizza. I got my mouth washed out with soap for saying shit damn, and fuck, but I only ever got in real trouble for using or doing the words that could harm me, words that hurt, words that helped the engineer who I am because they were more than just words, they were expectation and consequences, they were values, my parents taught me that I was named my name for a reason, they taught me not to hate, to never to say I can't, to never lie. My parents didn't hope that we would follow their rules. They expected to. A denied expectation hurts more than a denied hope, while a fulfilled hope makes us happier than a fulfilled expectation. Hope's got a higher return on happiness, but less debt on denial. It's just not as measurable. My parents measured. And while I'm not advocating for physical punishment as a consequence, I do know that there are a lot of things that I didn't do as a kid that I shouldn't have done because I didn't want to get my ass whooped. I also know that I did a lot of things as a kid that I should have done because I wanted my parents' praise and adulation. Consequences work both ways. I come from a loving family. We may not have always liked each other, but we did love each other. We hug, we kiss, we wrestle, we fight, we don't hold a grudge. I come from a long line of rule breakers, outlaw libertarians who vote red down the line because they believe it'll keep fewer outlaws from trespassing in on their territory. I come from a line of family disciplinarians where you better follow the rules until you were man enough to break them, where you did what mom and dad said because I said so, and if you didn't, you didn't get grounded, you got a belt or a backhand because it got your attention quicker. And it doesn't take away from your most precious resource, time. 
I come from a family who took you across town to your favorite cheeseburger and milkshake joint to celebrate your lesson learned immediately following your corporal correction. I come from a family that might penalize you for breaking the rules, but definitely punished you for getting caught. Slightly calloused on the surface, we know what tickles us often bruises others, because we deal with or deny it. We're the last to cry, uncle, or bad luck. Now, it's a philosophy that has made me a hustler in both senses of the word. I work hard, and I like to grift. It's a philosophy that's also led to some very great stories. Like a good southern boy should. I'll start with my mom. She's a true baller, living proof that the value of denial depends on one's level of commitment to it. She's beat two types of cancer with nothing more than aspirin and denial. She's a woman that says, I'm gonna, before I can. She would say, I would, before she could, and I'll be there before she's invited. Fiercely loyal to convenience and controversy, she's always had an adversarial relationship with context and consideration because they ask permission. She might not be the smartest person in the room, but she ain't crying. She's 88 now, and seldom do I go to bed after her or wake up before her. Her curfew, when she was growing up, was when she danced holes big enough in the feet of her pantyhose that they came up around her ankles. Nobody forgives himself quicker than she does, and therefore she carries zero stress. I once asked her if she ever went to bed with any regrets, and she quickly told me, Every night, son, I just forget him by the time I wake up. She always told us, don't walk into a place like you want to buy it. Walk in like you own it. Obviously, her favorite word in the English language is yes. In 1977, my mom entered me into the Little Mr. Texas contest in Banderera, Texas. And I won a big trophy. My mom framed this picture and put it up on the kitchen wall. Every morning when I came to breakfast, she gestured it to it and say, Look at you, winner, my Little Mr. Texas, 1977. Last year, I came across the picture in her scrapbook when something had caught my eye. Curious, I zoomed in on the nameplate up on the trophy, and it said, runner-up. And I called the queen of relativity my mom and said, Mom, all my life you told me that I was little Mr. Texas, but I was really runner-up. And she said, no, the kid who won it and his family had a lot more money than us, and they bought him a fancy little three-piece suit for the contest. We call that cheating. No, you're Mr. Little Texas. Then, in 1982, I entered into the 7th grade poetry contest. The night before the deadline, I showed the poem to my mom. Not bad. Keep working, she said. I headed back to my room and to work on the next draft. A couple hours later, happy with my progress, I took my poem to my mom again. She read it. Said nothing. Well, what do you think? I asked. She didn't answer. Instead, she opened up a hardcover book to a pre-marked page, put it in front of me and pointed and said, what do you think of that? If all I would want to do would be to sit and talk to you, would you listen? And said, it was a poem by Anne Ashford. I like it, I said. Why? Then write that, Mom said. Write this? What do you mean? Do you understand it? Yes, but if you like it and you understand it, then it's yours. But it's not really mine, Mom. It's Anne Ashford's. Does it mean anything to you? Yeah, well, it's like when someone you love just wants to sit and talk with you. Exactly. So if you like it and you understand it and it means something to you, it's yours. Write that. And sign my name to it? Yes. And I did. And I won the 7th grade poetry contest. 
My mom had no upbringing, and since she didn't like her life growing up to survive, she denied it and constructed her own. She always believed that if you understood something, then you own it. You can sign your name to it, take credit for it, live by it, sell it, win medals for it. Shit. Plagiarism? Shit. They'll probably never find out, and all they'll do is blame you and take your medal back. So fuck them, she says. Obviously, my mom was prepping me to be an act- actor before it became my vocation. Knowing the truth, seeing the truth, and telling the truth. All are different experiences. When mom taught us the audacious existentialism, my dad taught us common sense. He was a man who valued sirs, ma'ams, discipline, loyalty, persistence, work ethic, humility, rites of passage, the respect of women, and making enough money to secure your family. He also painted, took ballet, played for the Green Bay Packers, loved to roll the dice, chase Ponzi schemes, win something instead of buying it, and dreamed of opening a gumbo shack on the beach of Florida if he could ever hit the big lick big enough to retire. Deconstructing to construct his three sons, Dad repeated the yellow lights, and he made sure we learned the fundamentals before we expressed our individualism. To use a football term, he taught us to block and tackle before we could play wide out. It was clear who the man of the house was, and if any of his three boys wanted to challenge that notion, you know where to find me, he'd say. We feared him, not because he'd ever hurt or abused us, but because he was our father. We looked up to him. He was the law and government, and he didn't suffer fools unless you admitted to him of being one. A bear of a man with a soft spot for the underdog and the helpless. He had a rowdy wit about the world and himself. I'd rather lose money having fun than make money being bored, he'd say. He was also a proud man, and if you gave him a second chance, he'd never forget it. One time in the late 80s, after a banker declined a loan to bail him out of debt, he said, Now you can shut that door on me, or we can walk through it together. And he got the loan, and they walked through it. He loved to host a party, drink beer, and tell stories. And he had a hand at all three. His eldest son was Mike, and he had more to do with raising Mike than Pat or me, because one, Mike was his first, and two, Dad had to work on the road more often than later on in life. Mike was confident, scrappy, hard-working, a savvy guy with a hippie heart full of compassion for the runts of the world. Cool under pressure, and with a pain threshold of a badger, he was the first person you'd want with you if the going got tough. He survived so many near-death experiences, my mom always said, you and Pat need praying for. Mike, it don't matter. Raised on reverence for the Old Testament, we were a religious family. But it wasn't all the fire and brimstone. No, it was more the merciful teachings of Jesus. They also had their place in our parents' principles. When Mike was in high school, he started to grow long hair. And it grew long enough that the coach of his football team, Jim Cadwell, asked him to cut it. My dad agreed, but Mike refused. And driving Mike to school the next day, my dad said, You look like a hippie, son. If you don't cut your hair, coach is going to cut you from the team. I don't care, Pop. It's my hair, and if he wants to cut me from the team, then he can cut me. I'm not cutting my hair. Now, son, listen to me. Quit being stubborn and just cut your damn hair. Ignite, Mike said, No, sir. Dad, I'm not doing it. Son, I'm telling you. Well, well, Jesus had long hair, too. Mike blurted. Quiet. Playing the religious card was a crafty move, and Mike knew it might have sealed the deal in his favor. Dad, in silence, just continued to drive. 
And just as, as they were about to arrive at the school entrance, Mike, believing his Jesus tactic at work, Dad hit the gas and sped by. What the, what the hell, Dad? What are you doing? Mike asked. Dad proceeded to drive eight miles past Mike's school, not saying a word. Suddenly, he pulled off to the side of the road, leaned over, opened the passenger door, and pushed my brother out the door and said, Yeah, well, Jesus walked everywhere too, boy. My brother was late for school that day. Not only because my, my dad dropped him off eight miles from it, but because he stopped by the barbershop on his way there. Dad had worked his way up from a Texaco gas station manager to pipe hauler to pipe salesman in a local company called Gentico. He was a damn good pipe salesman. He got Mike a job selling pipe at Gentico as well, and my brother became a great pipe salesman and quickly. In less than a year, at the age of 22 years old, Mike was the top salesman in the company. The boss put him on their biggest account, a buyer by the name of Don Knowles. Now, Dad was truly proud of Mike, but Mike was still his son. We had an old wooden barn in the back of our house by a dirt alleyway where Dad kept an unloaded 18-wheeler from his pie pollen days. It was a Saturday night. Let's drink some beer and throw knives in the barn tonight, son, Dad told Mike. Sure, Pop. See you there on sundown. Around 10 o'clock, after quite a few beers, Dad finally bellied up. Let's go and roll some pipe like we used to, son. It's been a while. Now, rolling pipe was when you take an unloaded 18-wheeler to somebody else's pipe yard, load their pipe on it, drive away, and steal it. Dad and Mike used to do it on certain Saturday nights, back when Dad was hauling. Well, whose pipe you want to roll, Pop? Dad squared off at Mike and said, Don Knowles. Oh, shit. Nah, Dad, I ain't doing that. I just got the Don Knowles account, you know that. I do know that, and I got you the job at Gensco, boy. You wouldn't have that account if it wasn't for me. And where's your loyalty lie, son? With your old man or Don fucking Knowles? Now, Dad, you know that ain't fair. What ain't fair, boy? You too good to roll pipe with your old man like we used to? Huh? You too big time now, boy? Oh, shit. Now, Dad, easy. Dad took off his shirt. Let's see how big time you are, boy. You think you're man enough not to listen to your old man? You're gonna have to whoop him to prove it. Now, Dad... I don't want to bop. Dad walloped an open-palmed right hand right across Mike's face. Mike stumbled and stepped back, then straightened up, starting to roll up his sleeves. So this is how it's going to be, Mike said. That's how it's going to be. Come on, boy. That was 6'4", 265. Mike was 5'10", 180. Oh, shit. Dad, now crouched, stepped in with a light right hook and caught Mike's jaw. Mike went down. Dad started stalking towards him. On the ground, gathering himself up, Mike saw a two-by-four lying on the ground next to him. And just as Dad came in with another blow, Mike grabbed that two-by-four like a baseball bat and swung it to the right side of Dad's head. Dad stumbled back, sincerely dazed on his feet. Now stop it, Dad. I don't want to fight you. I ain't stealing Don Knoll's pipe tonight. Dad, bleeding from his ear, turned and leveled Mike with another right hook. Why, hell, you're not, boy. He said as he prowled on his own son on the ground. And with the two by four out of distance, Dan began bearing down on him again. Mike grabbed a handful of sandy gravel on the ground and slung it across Dad's face, blinding him. Dad stumbled back, struggling to get his bearings. That's enough, Pop. It's over. But it wasn't. Unable to see, Dad lunged towards Mike's voice. Mike easily sidestepped him. That's enough, Dad. Dad, now in a blind, groveling bear with bleeding ears, came at Mike again. Where are you, boy? Where's the son who won't roll Don Knoll's pipe with his old man? 
Mike picked up the two by four and held it at the ready. Dad, I'm telling you, it's over. If you come at me again, I'm going to knock you out with this two by four. And Dad, hearing him clearly, steadied himself and said, Give it your best shot, boy, as he blitzed Mike. Whop! That two by four went across Dad's head. And out cold, Dad lay as a heap on the ground. Damn it, Dad, Mike said in a shock, wondering if he'd killed him. Mike, crying now, knelt over Dad, yelling, Damn it, Dad, I told you not to come at me again. And Dad laid there unmoving. For four and a half minutes, Mike laid over his fallen pop, weeping. I don't want to do it, Dad, but you made me. Dad then came to until he got to his feet. I'm sorry, Dad, Mike shouted. I'm sorry. Mike's dad stood straight and wiped the gravel from his eyes. Mike, crying tear with shock and fear, readied himself for the risk of another round. Dad, eyes now clear, focused in on the young man who just knocked him out cold. His first son. The fight was over. Tears ran down my dad's face as well. But these were tears of pride and joy. Dad stepped towards Mike with open arms and took him into a loving bear hug, declaring into Mike's ear, That's my boy, son. That's my boy. From that day, Mike wasn't equal to Dad, and Dad treated him as such. Dad never challenged Mike again, physically, morally, or philosophically. They were the best of friends. You see, rites of passage were a huge big deal to my dad, and if you were man enough to take them on, then you had to prove it. And Mike just did. Second in line to the privilege of my dad's methods of turning his boys into men was Pat. And over the past 40 years, while Rooster's been chasing his career in the oil business in West Texas, and I've been chasing one in Hollywood, Pat has been fiercely loyal heartist of the family, the one who's always stayed closest to Mom. And growing up, he looked up after me, took up for me, and let me hang out with his friends, introduced me to rock and roll, taught me how to golf, how to drive, how to ask a girl out on a date, bought me my first beer. Pat was my hero, my evil Knievel. Pat's night with Dad came on a Friday in the early spring of 1969, eight months before I was magically born. Dad was out at Fred Smith's hunting camp with some friends a couple hours' drive from home. Now, their night's entertainment had been said segued into who could piss over the head of the highest. Each man from shortest to tallest would stand on the barn wall, put a mark over their head, and then the rest of them would see if they could flat-foot piss over the mark. Dad won when he was the only man who could piss over six feet four inches high, a mark he'd just put over his own head. The prize? Bragging rights. But Dad wasn't the tallest man in the barn that night. At six foot seven inches tall, Fred Smithers was. And even though Dad had already won the contest, he had to see if he could piss over Fred's head. Fred stood up, marked the wall. Come on, Big Jim, you can do it, his buddies cheered. Pop chugged another beer, leaned back, and let it fly. Nope. Six foot four was as high as he could piss. I knew you couldn't piss over my head, Big Jim. Hell, nobody can do that, Fred Smithers declared. To which Dad quickly replied, My boy can. Shit, Jim, ain't no way your boy or anybody else could piss over my head, Fred sneered. Like hell he can't. What do you want to bet? What do you want to bet? And Dad eyed a used Honda XR80 dirt bike leaning against the hay bale in the corner of the barn. You see, Pat had been asking for a dirt bike for Christmas all year long, but Dad knew he couldn't afford to buy one, used or not. I bet you that little dirt bike over there that my boy can piss over your, your head, Fred. And the gang all cackled up at the proposition. Fred looked at the dirt bike, then back at Dad and said, 
deal. If he don't, you owe me $200. Well, I ain't got $200 to lose, Fred, but if my boy can't piss over your head, then you can keep my truck. Dad said. Deal, Fred replied. Deal, I'll be back with my boy by sunrise. Now, don't y'all don't go to bed on me. And with that, Dad hopped into his beat-up pickup truck and drove 112 miles back to our house in Yulevide to pick up Pat. Wake up, little buddy. Hey, wake up. Dad said as he quietly shook Pat from his slumber. Put on a coat and some shoes on. We're going somewhere. Eight-year-old Pat got out of bed, put on some tennis shoes and a coat over his tidy whities and then headed to the bathroom. No, 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 son. I need you to hold it, Dad said as he rushed Pat over the door. And Dad and Pat drove the 112 miles back to Fred Smithers' hunting camp and made him drink two beers on the way. Then, when they finally got to camp at 4.40 in the morning, Pat's bladder was full of potential. Dad, I really gotta go. Bad. I know, I know, son. Just, just hold it for a few more minutes. Dad and Pat, in his tennis shoes, coat, and tidy whities walked into the barn. The boys had quieted down, but they were still awake. Fred Smithers, too. Boys, this is my son, Pat. He's about to piss over Fred's head. They all broke out into laughter again. Game on. And Fred sauntered over to the pissing wall, stood up, chalked a fresh line above his head, six foot seven of his height. What's going on, Daddy? Pat asked. See the mark on the wall that Mr. Fred just left? Yes, sir. Think you can piss over it? Hell yeah, Pat replied. Dropped his tidy waddies below his knees, put both hands on his pecker, aimed it at the mark, and let it fly. Pat cleared Fred Smithers' seven, six, seven mark by two feet. That's my boy. I told y'all he could press over Fred's head. And Dad hustled over to the corner of the barn, grabbed that Honda XR80, and rolled it over to Pat. Merry Christmas, son. Then they loaded it to the back of Dad's truck, hopped in, and drove the 112 miles back home just in time for breakfast. Fourteen years later, Pat became the number one golfer in the Mississippi Delta State Statements golf team. A scratch golfer known as the Texas Stallion, Pat had just won the low medalist at the SEC tournament on the Arkansas Razorbacks home course. The coach called the team meeting on the bus ride home. Tomorrow morning, my house, 8 a.m. sharp. Next morning, Coach gathered the team in his living room and said, I have a concern that some of the players on our team were smoking marijuana in the city park of Little Rock yesterday before the tournament. Now, before we, what we have to do is find out who brought that marijuana from Delta State to Little Rock and who was smoking it. He was staring at Pat. Now, Pat, raised by my dad to know that telling the truth would save your ass, stepped forward. Coach, it was me. I brought the weed, and I smoked it. Pat stood there, alone. None of his other teammates moved or said a word, even though there were three of them that had passed a doobie with him the other morning in Little Rock. Nobody else, Coach asked? Nothing. I'll let you know what my decision is tomorrow, Coach said. You're dismissed. The next morning, Coach showed up to Pat's dorm room. I'm telling your father, and you're suspended from playing golf for the next semester. Pat caught his breath. Come on, Coach, I told you the truth, and I'm the best golfer on the team. It doesn't matter, Coach said. You broke the team rule about drugs. You're suspended, and I'm going to tell your father. Look here, Coach, Pat said. You can suspend me, but you can't tell my dad. You don't, you don't understand. A DUI, you could call him about. But marijuana, he'll kill me. Pat had gotten busted with weed a couple times in his late teens, and after being on the receiving end of Dad's brand of discipline and disdain for Mary Jane before, he was going to make sure there wasn't a third. Well, that's between you and him. Coach didn't budge. All right, Coach. Let's go for a ride. 
They got in Pat's 81Z28 and headed out for a drive across the Delta. After about 10 minutes of silence, Pat finally spoke up. Let me make this real clear to you, Coach. You can suspend me. But if you call my dad, I'll kill you. Pat got suspended. My dad never found out. Now, as I said, I was an unplanned surprise. An accident, as my mom still calls me. My dad has always half-jokingly told her, That ain't my boy, Katie. That's your boy. Dad was on the road a lot when I was growing up, working to take care of the family, so I spent most of my time with mom. It was true. I was a mama's boy. And when I did get to spend time with my dad, I relished every moment. I wanted and needed his approval, and on the occasions he gave it to me. Other times, he'd rearrange my considerations with extremely colorful ways. As a kid, my favorite TV show was The Incredible Hulk, starring Lou Ferrigno. I marveled at his muscles and would pose in front of the TV with my shirts off, arm bent, fists high, doing my best bulging bodybuilder bicep impersonation. One night, my dad saw me. What are you doing, son? He asked. One day, I'm going to have big muscles like that, Dad, he said, motioning at the TV screen. Big baseball-sized biceps. Dad laughed. Then took off his shirt, matched my pose in front of the tube, and he said... Yeah, big biceps make the girls scream. They sure look good, but that old boy on TV, he's so muscle-bound he can't even reach to wipe his own ass. The biceps? They're just for show. He then slowly lowered both arms in front of him, straightening them out with his fist to the floor, and he twisted his arms on the inside and flexed a massive pair of tricep muscles. Now the tricep, son, he said, pointing at his nose back and forth at the bulging muscles on the other back of his arm. That's the work muscle. That's the muscle that puts food on the table and a roof over your head. The triceps, they're for dough. My dad would take the stock room over the showroom any day. It was the summer of 1979 when dad moved mom, me, and Pat from Mulevade, Texas to the fastest growing oil boom East Texas City in, in the nation, Longview population 76,000. Where U of L taught me to deal, Longview taught me to dream. Like everybody else, we moved for the same reason. Money. Dad was still a pipe salesman and Longview was the place to make it rich in the drilling business. And soon after arriving in town, Pat went away to golf camp and mom went on an extended vacation at a beach house in Nevada Beach, Florida. Rooster, already a multimillionaire in his mid-twenties, had moved to Midland, Texas, so it was just Dad and me living in a double-wide trailer on the outskirts of town. My dad could hurt with his hands, but he could also heal with them. Painkillers were no match for his hand on Mom's head when she had migraines. Whether it was a broken arm or a broken heart, Dad, Dad's hands and his hugs could heal, especially when in the service of an underdog or somebody who couldn't help themselves. Now, the other inhabitant of that double-wide trailer that Dad and I were living in that summer was a pet cockatiel named Lucky. Dad loved that bird, and that bird loved Dad. He'd open her cage each morning and let her fly around the trailer. She'd roost on his shoulder while walking around and perch on his forearm while he petted her. He talked to Lucky, and Lucky talked to him. We only put Lucky back in her cage at night to sleep. The rest of the time, Lucky was loose in the trailer morning until night. The only rule was you had to watch it when you exited or entered the trailer so that Lucky didn't get out. One late afternoon, after a July of exploring the countryside on foot, I got back to the trailer the same time that Dad got home from work. When we got inside, Lucky wasn't there to greet Dad like she always did. We looked all over. No Lucky. 
Shit, I thought. Did I accidentally let her out this morning when I left? Did anybody else come over today while we were gone? Seconds later, I heard Dad in the back of the trailer. Oh, God. God, no. Lucky. And I ran to the back and found Dad on his knees, leaning over the toilet. There, floating in circles, in the bottom of it was Lucky. Tears dripping off of his cheeks, Dad reached in with both hands into the bottom of the bowl, gently cradled Lucky out. Oh, no, Lucky. No. He groaned through sobs. Lucky was dead. Soaking wet, motionless. She must have accidentally fallen into the toilet and gotten stuck beneath the seat's edge trying to get out. Dad, still weeping, brought Lucky's soggy, lifeless body closer to his face where he examined her hanging head. Then, he opened his mouth wide and slowly put Lucky into it until the bottom half, up to her wings and her tail feathers, were all outside of it. He started to give Lucky mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Only breathing through his nose so to keep constant airflow into her lungs, he made sure his breaths were measured, enough, he hoped, to revive her but not so much as to burst her tiny lungs. On his knees, over a toilet, cradling the bottom half of a cockatiel named Lucky with the top half of the same bird in his mouth, he breathed into her the perfect amount of pressure. One exhale. Two exhales. Three exhales. His tears already soaking the saturated bird. Four exhales. Five. A feather quivered. Six exhales. Seven. A wingtip fluttered. Eight. Dad lightly loosened his grip and released some of the pressure from his lips. Nine. Another wing tried to flap. He opened his mouth slightly wider. Ten. And that's when we heard, coming from the inside of my father's mouth, a small chirp. Now with tears of pain turning to tears of joy, Dad gently removed Lucky's torso and head from his mouth. Lucky twitched some toilet water and saliva off her head. And now face to face, they looked into each other's eyes. She was dead. Now she was alive. Lucky lived another eight years. That same summer, while Dad was at work every day, I explored the endless acres of Honeywood, barefoot and shirtless, wandering with a chamois rope around my waist and my Daisy BB gun in the hand. Coming from Yulvade, I'd never seen trees like this. Towering pines shooting straight up into the sky. Thousands of them. I was in awe, in particular, of a white pine among the Ponderosa, six feet wide at its base and a peak trespassing the airspace. One late afternoon, I was chasing down a squirrel with my daisy half a mile from home when I came across a fence about ten feet tall. It was strangled with vines and overgrowth, a few faded no-trespassing signs that I could see. I crouched, pulled back some foliage, and peeked through. On the other side was a lumberyard. Men in hats, a couple of forklifts in action, and a mountainous stack of two-by-fours, four-by-fours, and plywood. Perfect, I thought, for a treehouse. And the next morning after breakfast, you see, Dad went to work at 6.30 like he always did. And as soon as he left, I went into our toolbox and found what I was looking for. A pair of wire cutters. I put on my chamois, grabbed my daisy, left my shoes in the closet, and ran to scope out my mark. How was I going to do this? There were people working at the lumberyard all day so I'd have to come at night. I plotted. What if I got caught by somebody at the lumberyard? What if I got caught sneaking out by Dad? What if he then found out that I was stealing lumber from the lumberyard half a mile from home? I was nervous. I was excited. That night after dinner, I'd been watching The Incredible Hulk like I always did. Dad and I said our goodnights. 
I laid in bed, wondering how long I should wait before I opened the double-wide bedroom window to sneak out. I could hear Dad still moving around on his end of the trailer, so I waited until the slightest creaks had been silent for at least an hour to make my move. Slowly, quietly, I got out of bed, wrapped my chamois shirt, left my shoes in the closet, and I grabbed my daisy, a small flashlight, and the wire cutters. I tossed them all carefully out the window, onto the lawn, before I snuck out myself down the window and headed out to my secret stash. It was around 1 a.m. I figured I should be back in home in bed before 5, so I'd have a few hours to work. The yard was quiet. I threw a couple of rocks over the fence to see if any guard dogs were around. Nothing. Pulled out some vines and brushes, and then with the flashlight between my chin and my chest, I brought the wire cutters to the first chain and with both hands, clip. Why, it took all my double-fisted might to cut through it. Clip, clip, clip until I'd cleared a space about six feet wide and four feet tall, wide enough to get those plywood planks through, small enough to go unnoticed, I hoped. Adrenaline pumping, I laid on my back and shimmied under the fence onto the private property. I went to the stack of two-by-fours, four-by-fours, and I started pulling them off, dragging them through the opening of the fence. I pushed it as far as I could and then crawled under the fence, pulling it out from the other side, where I dragged it a few hundred yards into the forest and left it at the base of the big white pine. Then... I ran back to steal the next one. Once I got my second load of the tree, it was already a little after 4.30 in the morning. So, I raced back to the fence, replaced all the brush and vines to conceal the hole I'd cut, then ran back home. I snuck in the window, put my daisy and flashlight back on the shelf, the wire cutters under my mattress, got under the covers, and slept until Dad woke me up at 6 to make breakfast. It went on like that for over a month. Getting little sleep at night, I'd take cat naps under that white pine next to my growing stack of lumber during the day, then make it home for dinner and do it all over again. I'd do this every night inside enough 2x4s, 4x4s, and plywood planks to build the biggest and tallest treehouse in the world. With the most dangerous part of my plan behind me, and two months of summer left, it was time to start construction. I'd also stolen about 40 feet of 15-gauge steel-trim pin nail guns, nails from the yard, and I already had a hammer and about 26 and a 26-inch handsaw from our toolbox at home. All I needed was daylight. Up at 6 and out the door by 7, I worked on that treehouse until dark seven days a week for the next two months. Shirtless and shoeless in my chamois, I crisscrossed two paper collated chips of the nails over my shoulder and across my heart, half Comanche Indian, half Pancho Villa, with a hammer in my hand, I went to work. I started with the bottom floor and then I built up. I cut a 2x4 hole in each of the floors next to the trunk of the tree where I nailed pieces of 2x4 for ladder steps to get floor to floor. I also made a pulley system that I raised to each floor. I'd pack my lunch each morning and take it to my construction site. Put my brown bag in the trough, climb up to the highest floor, and hoist my sandwich up to eat during my lunch break. Six weeks later when I was done, that treehouse was 13 stories high. The 13th floor was over 100 feet above the ground, and from there I could see all the way to downtown Longview, 15 miles away. For the next two weeks, I spent every day up there above the rest of the world where I hoisted up my brown bag lunch and daydreamed, swearing I could see the Earth's curve on the horizon. Now, understanding where and why the city of Longview got its name. It was the best summer of my life. Green light. Then September came and I had to go back to school. Mom came back from Florida and we soon we moved into a neighborhood house on the other side of town. I never saw that treehouse again. I often wonder if it's still there today. I thought of having that treehouse when I was making the movie Mud. 
My treehouse was those boys boat in a tree. A secret. A mystery. A place of danger, wonder, and dreams. If Mud had been released in 1979, my dad would have come to me and said, Hey buddy, there's a movie called Mud I saw and we gotta watch it together. Damn, it's a good one. And then I might have said to him, Dad, there's this treehouse in the woods I built. I gotta show it to you, because damn, it's a good one. Oh yeah, that extended vacation in Florida that my mom was on? It'd be 20 years before I learned that in fact it was not a vacation, but rather she and dad were in the middle of their second divorce. Now during high school, we lived in the same house on the other side of town in Longview. Mom had just started selling a product called Oil of Mink, a facial cosmetic that she peddled door to door. It was touted as a breakthrough skincare treatment that would bring out all of the impurities in your skin and saturate your face with beautiful mink oil so you'd have clear, glowing complexion for the rest of your life. At the same time, I was also entering adolescence. You know, pubic hair is growing in, balls dropping, voice lowering, and a few pimples. And one day, my mom looked at my face and said, You should use that oil of mink. Fan of self-regard and looking my best, I listened to her and started applying oil of mink to my face each night before bed. The result? More pimples. It must be bringing out the impurities, Mom said. And I listened to her again and continued to slather more oil of link on my face each night. A week went by. More pimples. Twelve days passed. Now I had what looked like full-blown acne. Mom, are you sure this is okay for me to be using? Of course it is, but let's call my boss Elaine to come over and have a look just to be sure. And Elaine came over and took a look at my swollen, zit-infested face. Oh, wow, she shrieked. Yes, the product is doing exactly what you're supposed to do. It's bringing out over all of the impurities. And my, oh my, you must just have lots of impurities, Matthew. Just keep applying the oil of mink each night, and eventually it'll pull all the impurities out, and then you'll have a clear, glowing complexion for the rest of your life. Well, shit, okay. Sounded like I just needed to weather the storm, so I stayed at it. Three weeks in, my entire cheeks were swollen, red pustulates, Huge whiteheads, blistering geysers of pus. I looked like a different person. Against my mother's counsel, I decided to see a dermatologist. Dr. Haskins looked at my face. Oh my, Matthew, what the... The pores on your face are clogged. They're holding oil and grease in. There's no room for them to breathe. What are you putting on your face? He asked. I pulled out the bottle of oil of mink, and he examined the label. How long have you been using this product, Matthew? 21 days. Oh my god, no, 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 this is for people that are at least over 40 years old, definitely not for a teenager going through adolescence, when your skin is making more oil. This product has been completely blocked your pores, Matthew. You've got a severe nodular acne. You were probably 10 days away from having ice pick scars in your cheeks for the rest of your life. I'm going to prescribe you a pill called Accutane. Hopefully we've caught it in enough time, and the Accutane will dry you out to such an extent that maybe you can get rid of the acne within a year, and hopefully not have lifelong damage. Well, that oil of mink just didn't work at all, did it, Matthew? Mom innocently proclaimed. No, Mom, it didn't. I immediately got off the oil of mink and got on the Accutane, and that came with its own set of side effects. I mean, after a few weeks, my skin started drying out, my face started to scale and flake, the creases in my lips dried up and bled, my knees got arthritic, I got headaches, my hair started falling out, I got hypersensitive reactions, I looked like a swollen prune. All side effects I was more than happy to live with as long as it got rid of my oil of mink-induced acne. But that's not the end of the story. No, not in the McConaughey household. My dad smelled an opportunity. We're going to sue him. That goddamn oil of mink company, that's what we'll do. We're going to sue him and make some money off this whole deal. 
I mean, look at you, son. That product should have never been given out to you, boy. And that lady Elaine, she shouldn't have been telling your mother to give it to you. I'm telling you, we've got a case. My dad took me to meet his lawyer, Jerry Harris, a good-looking, uh, middle-aged man who had an air of confidence about him that made you think he was from Dallas, not Longview. Damn right we've got a case, Jerry, he said. This product should have never been administered to a teenager. Why, there's no disclaimer or warning on the bottle about possible harms either. And I'm sure that besides all the physical pain you're going through, Jerry and my dad honed in on me, you are under great emotional distress as well, aren't you, Matthew? Uh, yeah. And Jerry pulled out a cassette recorder and pressed the red button. Yes, what? I am under great emotional distress at this time. Because I have had bad acne on my face that I've never had before using this oil of mink product. Exactly, Jerry said. And this has this predicament affected your confidence? Yes, sir. In what way? It's lower. Good. Has it affected your relationship with the girls? I mean, I was doing really good with the girls before I had the acne. I'm not really doing so well now. Exactly, Jerry said, stopping the tape recorder. We've got a case, Jim. Emotional distress has a strong back to backing for prosecution. And hell, I mean, look at him. It's all swollen up, looks like shit. I think we can get 35 and 50 grand out of this deal. A big gunslinger's grin spread across Dad's face, and he gave Jerry a heavy attaboy handshake and patted me on the back. Good job, boy. Good job. Well, as you know, lawsuits take a while. Two years have passed, and the oil of mink applications... With my acne long gone, not a pimple on my face, not a side effect in sight, because the Accutane had worked, I was now being called into a disposition with a defense attorney representing oil of mink. Cassette recorder on the desk, red button pressed. Matthew, how are you, son? I'm doing better, thank you. I'm just so sorry that all this happened to you, Matthew. It must have been such an emotionally distressful time for you. And I couldn't believe it. The defense attorney just lobbed me a softball, and I was ready to crush it over the fence. Oh, yes, sir. It was an emotionally stressful time. I mean, I looked like the elephant man, and my scalp was dry, my hair was falling out, my knees hurt, my back's hurt, my face flaked. I didn't have any confidence. I wasn't doing good with the girls. I mean, that oil of mink almost scarred me for life. Oh, bless your heart, young man. I can only imagine how tough it must have been and still is on you. I doubled down. Yes, sir, that's right. He stared at me a moment, and then the slightest Cheshire grin began to creep up on his lips as he reached under the table and pulled out a high school yearbook. My high school yearbook from that year. 1988. He slowly opened it and turned to a flagged page, swiveled the book around to face me and slid it in my direction, then reaching across the table, put his finger on a particular picture and said, Is this you? It was. It was a picture of me with Camissa Springs. We both had a silk sash draped across our chest from shoulder to hip. Here reads, hers read, most beautiful. Mine reads, most handsome. Shit. I knew right then that our case was done. He had me. Scarred for life, huh? So emotionally distressed, he said as his grin got wider. And I was right. We were done. Case dropped. My dad was inconsolable. He went on about it for weeks, muttering, God damn you, boy, here I am. I got a chance to make thirty-five, fifty thousand dollars on a lawsuit that we could have won. And you go off and win most handsome. You screwed up this whole lawsuit, son. Damn you, boy. A few months later, 
with my mom on her second extended vacation to Navarra Beach. Not a second divorce, actually just a little break from each other. It was dad and me living together again, this time in our three-bedroom house instead of the double-wide. I got home by my midnight curfew, and unexpectedly, dad was awake and on the phone. Sure, Mr. Felker, you just got in. Let me ask him. I heard him say as I entered the bedroom. Lights were on, and he was sitting on his side of the bed in his underwear. He lowered the phone from his ear and held it between his neck and his shoulders. What'd you do tonight, son? I should have known I was busted, but instead chose to try and hustle the man who taught me how to hustle. Uh, not much. Uh, Bud Felker and I went to Pizza Hut and then dropped me off here at home, I said. You pay for that pizza, son? He was giving me the second chance to come clean and avoid getting punished for the one thing that was worse than getting caught misbehaving. Lying about it. But rather than admitting what I'd done, and instinctually he knew what I had done, I chose to double down on my grovel. Well, I think so, Dad. I mean, I went to the car before Bud. I'm pretty sure he was supposed to pay for it. Digging my own grave. I was too deep to climb out now. Dad took a deep breath. A delayed blink and a look dis- and looked distraught for a moment. And then he lifted the phone back to his ear. Mr. Felker, thank you, sir. I'll handle mine from here. And he placed the phone back on its holster. Now I was starting to sweat. Dad calmly put his hands on his knees and raised his chin to look me in the eye when I saw his molars meet. I'm going to ask you one more time like this, son. Did you know you were going to steal that pizza? All I had to do was say, yes, sir, dad, I did. And he would have only cussed me out about not committing the crime thoroughly enough to get away with it and lashed my ass with his leather belt a couple times because I got caught. But no. My eyes widened, a quarter-sized spot of urine now beginning to show in the crotch of my jeans. I, I stuttered. No, sir. Like I said, I whap. The back of my father's hand crashed across my face as he leapt from the bed and interrupted my pitiful plea. I hit the ground, not so much from the force of his strike, but from the instability of the cowardly, panic-stricken, lactic acid legs that I was wobbling on. I deserved it. I earned it, I asked for it, and I wanted it. I needed it, and I got it. I lied to him, and that broke his heart. Stealing pizza was no big deal. He'd stolen plenty of pieces of his life, and then some. All I had to do was admit it, but I didn't. Now on my knees crying from shock and fear, just like my brother Mike had been, but for different reasons, I was ashamed, and unlike him in that barn, I was a rat, a fink, a pussy, a coward. It's not my boy, Kitty. That's yours, was all I could hear in my mind. He stood over me. The waitress at Pizza Hut recognized Bud. She looked up the number and called his house, asked his dad to just have him bring the money for the pizza by tomorrow. Bud told his dad that it was all his idea to steal that, and you just went along with it. But you lied to me, son. You told me that you didn't know. All he wanted to do was stand up like a man. And all he wanted to do was stand up like a man, admit that I had fucked up, look him in the eye and shake it off. But no, I cowered. I made excuses. I whimpered as he looked down on me, piss stain on my jeans now spreading to my leg getting more furious with my spinelessness he dropped on all fours like a bear in front of me and taunted me come on i'll give you a four to one four of your best shots right across my kisser to one of mine against yours paralyzed numb i didn't take the offer the idea of striking my dad made my hands feel like proper paper mache the thought of him striking me made my brain drain why why he raged 
Unable to answer, I just stumbled to a knee level and crawled to the nearest corner of the room where I stayed until he finally stood up and shook his head at me, wondering what he'd done wrong to raise such a coward of a son. I've often regretted what I did or didn't do that night. I had my chance in my rite of passage to become one of his boys or a man in his eyes, but I got stage fright, pissed my pants, failed the test, I choked, 